morning. Hey, there I am. It really works well when you turn your mic on. I'm so glad you are here. If you came for the first time or one of your first times, we're grateful. I know sometimes it's hard to step into a new environment. We appreciate you doing that. Uh, if you're joining us online, thank you for joining us online. So before I, when I left college, I joined the staff of Campus Crusade, and my first assignment in campus ministry was Colorado State University. And I'm a bit of a college football fan. They were in the Western Athletic Conference, and in this season they were playing against Wyoming, who was their traditional rival for the WAC championship. So I would go to the game anyway, but I was particularly interested. And it was like a 1 o'clock start. And it, these, these weren't heavily attended, so it, seats were pretty easy. And I sat in the student section. Uh, and I realized pretty quickly um, most of the students I was around were drunk, and it had snowed um, the day before. And these students were far more interested in throwing snowballs than they were in watching the game. And so the snowballs were going, and I thought, I'm not going to get to watch the game here. I'm going to try and make my way over. But before I did that, there was some guy who got hit, and he stood up and looked for the guy. And, hey, what do you think happened when he stood up? Everybody threw a snowball at him. So then it's, hey, man, you're just getting, dude, sit down. Sit down. You're living foolishly here. Well, it took about 12 snowballs where he thought, yeah, I'm going to cut my losses here and sit down. So I thought, I want to make my way to the other side, so it's a bad idea to stand up. I don't want to live that way. So I slid along the seats about three sections over until I made it where I could watch. Well, that guy's example helped me to not live foolishly in those circumstances. Well, today the psalmist wants to help us not live foolishly. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open that to Psalm 14, we're going to go all the way through this passage, and we're going to wrestle with the question, what keeps us from living foolishly? As Emily mentioned, we're in a series called Hope Again. We're taking most of the summer to go through the Psalms. We'll pick and choose, and then Labor Day, we'll, we'll move on from that. We've talked about if we lose hope, we lose energy to live. But I think as followers of Christ, there's no reason for us not to hope. There's every reason to hope. And in that hope, to have reason to live. So, our psalmist starts this way. He says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. All right, these people who say there's no God, this is what he says about it. And they're corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds there's no one who does good. Well, if there is no God, and I've got 60 or 70 or 80 years, that's all I got, I better, better get all I could get. And if that means I cheat or I, I break a word to you, or, or I, well, so be it, because, man, the time's going. So corruption follows from not knowing God, because I'm not going to give an account for my life. So they commit, they commit abominable deeds. Well, of course they do, because they're not going to have to give an answer. There's a consequence. We live foolishly when we say there's no God. We act as if we won't give an account when we will. But I want to back up. Um, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That brings us in conflict with our culture. Um, very intelligent people can live foolishly because they act as if they won't give an account. 
If we think back to what happened in Genesis with Adam and Eve, basically the issue was, God, I don't want you telling me what to do. So I'm going to do my own thing. Well, that was just a precursor of what our world would be like. In the New Testament, they use the term the world, the writers use the term the world, to describe a system that intentionally excludes God. Given that's the system we're living in, we shouldn't be surprised then by the theory of evolution, which would deny a need for God and say we just evolved. Well, I want to suggest I have three issues with evolution, and the first one is the, the question of first cause. So when I was in seminary, we had to read, I don't know, four or five transcripts on uh, a debate between a theist and an atheist. And in my estimation, those atheists just skipped the question of the first, first cause, just passed over it. One of them said, you Christians say it's, you theists say it's, it's God. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's about what we say. Either it's God, an eternal, infinite being, or, or something is coming from nothing. So in preparation, I did a little Google search, and apparently there's a new book out. And this physicist has said, uh, we, we, we came from nothing. It all started with this hot mass. And I, I did not read the book. I just read the flyleaf. I will confess that. But my question is, where did the heat and where did the mass come from? First cause, to me, remains unanswered. Second reason I have a problem with evolution is mathematical possibilities. Uh, years ago, I went to see a particle physicist speak at the University of Nebraska. His name's Mike Strauss. He's at the University of Oklahoma. He said this, there are many characteristics that are of the universe that are finely tuned to allow complex life to exist. If any of these were changed just slightly, there would be either no universe or a universe that is inhospitable for life. For instance, okay, here's one example. If the strength of the nuclear force were increased by just 2%, there would be little or no hydrogen in the universe, resulting in no water. And no stars like our sun that use hydrogen as fuel. So that's what happens if you increase it by 2%. Now here's the other side. If the strength of the nuclear force were decreased by 5%, there would only be hydrogen in the universe, making life impossible. Scientific journals are filled with articles that document hundreds of such parameters in the universe that are balanced on a razor's edge to allow the existence of our universe in life. Scientists sometimes call this phenomenon the anthro anthropic, anthropic principle, which comes from the Greek word anthropos, meaning human. It is as if the human universe seems to be perfectly designed to allow humans to exist. Such a design is objective evidence that points to the existence of a real intelligence designer who created the universe. So what he's saying is, we've got all these details. Like you talked about the force there. If it's, if it's 2% this, it's 5% that, we don't exist. But then there's the angle with the earth. There's the distance of the earth. There's the makeup. Of, and, 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 and there's all these factors that just happen to fall in this narrow window that means we sustain life. Mathematically, what are the probabilities that those line up? Well, they're infinitesimally small. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. My wife and I love to play spades. It's a card game. I won't go into the details, but the more spades you get in the deal, the better. Usually I play with four players. There's 13 spades, so the law of averages say you would get three to four spades per deal. Let's say I'm the dealer, and in the first hand, I end up with six spades in my hand. Again, the more spades you get, the better. <laughs> well, man, I got a good roll on that deal. On, on the next time, and I'm just for the sake of argument, I'm going to be the dealer all the time, I end up with eight spades in my hand. 
Wow, Andy, it's going really well for you. The next one, I end up with 10 spades. How many times does it have to go before you guys say, you're cheating? <laughs> Nate, you wouldn't say that, would you? No, no, Nate wouldn't. And I'd say, I'm a pastor, man. I'm a man of the claw. No, you're cheating. This just won't add up. This. How, many, how many times? Three or four times? And you say, no, no. Andy, you're, you're fixing or you're designing the deck that you're getting all the spades. Well, Mike Strauss is saying is, it's not three or four, but there are hundreds of principles that keep lining up. At some point, you've got to say, it ain't random. <laughs> it's designed. So first cause question, mathematical possibilities. And then I, I want to take about, again, this is Mike Strauss's idea, that evolution. I, I just want to take one body, body part. I want to take the eye. Have you, have you ever looked at a model of the eye? You got the cornea, you got the iris, you got the pupil, you got the lens, and you, then back behind it, you got the retina, and you got the optic nerve. And, and remember, evolution says there's a mutation that you get a, a part of this. Maybe, maybe you get the cornea and the lens, but if you don't get the optic nerve or the retina, what good does that mutation do you? How, then, did the eye evolve? What are the steps? Because that's what evolution says. There's, there's steps in, 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 in development. There's, so, so what are the steps in the evolution of the eye? One of the things, that if you do it, if you go home and get on your computer, just make a Google search image of an eye and tell me, do you think that evolved? What do you think it was designed? It's pretty intricate. So two years ago, I went for my annual eye checkup, and they, I couldn't, nothing, nothing changed on the, does this help, does this help, does this help? And no, no, you got a cataract. In fact, I had two. And the doctor said, your eye is, is very healthy, but the lens is cloudy, and if we don't go fix that lens, well, the whole thing's not going to work. What's my point? In, in the evolution, if one thing is off, the whole thing blows up. What's the most reasonable thing to believe about the eye? I think it was designed. That, that's just a small part of the human body. What's my point? I, I understand. There's a, a culture that says we evolved. I, I categorically disagree, but let's not be surprised. We live in a world system that denies God. Now, having said that, if you are having a conversation with somebody who is an atheist, I would question getting into an argument with them. Because what I have found most times is not an intellectual Question. It's a volitional question. So I was in campus ministry. I'd have these discussions all the time, and it would get going. I'd say, let, let, let me stop. Let me, let me give you this hypothetical. I've got video of Jesus coming from the tomb, and I've got a notarized statement from God saying that the Bible's his word. Will you submit yourself to Jesus as he reveals himself in the Bible? And every time the answer to that question was no. I'd say, you don't have an intellectual problem with God. You have a volitional problem with God. Yeah, I can't give you enough evidence to get you to change. No. So I think the best then is to build a relationship with it. What, what do we have in common? What, how can we do this? Can I share, you know, in the context of that trust, I share my story, my belief, of what Jesus did in my life, and, and, and in that, begin to share what, why I think faith is the reasonable thing. Uh, we owe people intellectual answers if that's what they're really looking for, but I don't know that we're looking for that in most cases. So God says to the psalmist, it's the fool 
who says there's no God. We go on, verses 2 through 4. It says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside together. They've become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? That's what sets these people apart. They don't call upon God. They think they are in control. But when God looks down, he doesn't see an individual problem. He sees a universal problem. He sees a human problem. That's our nature. We rebel. said this before, but those of you who have been parents or grandparents, what's one of the first words your kids learn? No, don't tell me what to do. That's a human trait. We push back. That's why God sent Jesus. He lived the life we're supposed to live in complete submission to the Father. Right at the point, he died on the cross. There's no more theological book in the Bible than Romans. And the argument of Romans is this. Romans 1 is everybody's guilty before God. God made himself known in creation, and people rejected him. Romans 2, the Jewish people had special revelation, and they pushed back too. So Romans 3 is everyone's guilty before God. And in making that case, Paul references what we just read here in uh, Psalm 14. Here's what he says in Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. They've become useless. There's no one who does good. There's not even one. And then Paul will go on in Romans 4 through 8 to make the case, you and I need Jesus. We're talking about living foolishly. And I would be wrong at this point to say, have you made the decision to follow Christ? Otherwise, you're in that group that is living foolishly. All of us pushed back. All of us rebelled against God. That's why Jesus came, to die for our sin and to rise again. And if you've never trusted him, I want to invite you to do that now. You can do that in the quietness of your heart. If you'll do that, he'll forgive your rebellion and he'll restore your heart that you can begin to weigh the Live the way you were designed to live, in submission to God. See, we're wrestling with this question. What keeps us from living foolishly? Remember the guy? Football game, standing up, getting hit with snowballs, sit down. Dude, sit down. Stands up, keeps getting hit. I don't want to live that way. What keeps us from living foolishly? Biblically, I'd say this. The presence of God manifested in Jesus. That keeps us from living foolishly. The presence of God keeps us from living foolishly. Now in verse 4, God talks about my people. My people. Who are my people? They recognize there is a God. They, they call on him. That's God's complaint. End of verse 4, they don't call on God. We, we've called on God, starting with a relationship with Jesus. And we know we'll give an account to him. There's a world committed to getting rid of God. And so if you're a person representing God, they're coming after you. About six months ago, I felt like in my quiet times, you know, I read, I don't even know what I read. And so I started doing my reading in Spanish. We were overseas missionaries for a while, and so reading in Spanish forces me to slow down. I read five psalms and a proverb a day. And you know what stuck out to me from the psalms? The psalmists are forever crying out about enemies. Enemies of who? Of God. And they're against God's people. 
God says. The world comes after the people of God. But in verses 5 and 6, he talks about these people. Here's what he says. There, they are in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. That's a difficult passage to translate, and I think Eugene Peterson does it well in the message. Night is coming for them. Who is them? The people who would persecute God's people. And nightmares. Why? For God takes the side of victims. God, he says God is with this righteous generation. Yeah, if you stand for God, you're going to take some heat. But God says there's judgment coming upon those who would persecute my people. And I sustain them. Then he goes on to say, verse 6, do you think you can mess with the dreams of the poor? Why would he say that? Because if you're a person who doesn't think you're going to give account about your life, well, you take advantage of those who are weak, those who don't have resources. You take advantage of the poor. But here's what God says. You can't, for God makes their dreams come true. Throughout the Old Testament, it is clear God cares for the poor. Jesus, when he was on earth, was a friend of sinners. Man, he was drawing the people on the margins, the lepers, the prostitutes, and beyond. And he calls, God calls his people to stand for the poor. One of the ways we're living this out is in our adoption of an Afghan family. They're refugees here. Let me give you one thing. They're a little boy. they got four little kids. Their little kid is, is eating paint chips. And he shows up with elevated lead levels. And they got to put this little boy in the hospital. Can you imagine this as a parent? You don't understand the language. You don't understand Jack. And then they find out, yeah, there's lead in the paint, and you got to go through the health department, and there's a remediation process, and you don't know the language, and you got to walk through this? God calls us to be a part of that. And Chris Eubanks was there. She was eating meals on the floor of the hospital room with them. And she was walking them through the papers. They couldn't do it. They didn't know the language. God calls his people to care for the poor. Why? Because in a world of God, they're, they're going to take advantage of it. So God looks down from heaven. And he sees two types of people. Those who would reject him and those who would follow him. Paul wrote about this difference in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Talking about those who would reject him. Here's what he says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Yeah, you, you walk the world because you don't know any different. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we too formerly all lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and they were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We, we live for the world. The judgment of God. Fortunately, that's not the end of the passage. There's a transition. Verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ, by grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you're a person who follows God, I want you to notice three words in verses 4 through 6. Love of God, grace, and mercy. We're never looking down. <laughs> On people who don't know God. Because it is the love of God. It is the grace of God. It's not our intelligence. It's the mercy of God. It's the grace of God. And so we're reaching out to those people. Trying to build relationship with them. That they might come to know. 
the one who will keep them from living foolishly. One last thought. The, the psalmist is writing about living in oppression. He writes about living as a refugee because for 70 years Israel lived in Babylon. Oh, he says that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. They look forward to the time. God said, you'll go into captivity for 70 years. I will raise up a new king, a new world power. Persia, a king named Cyrus will set you free. We'd look forward to that act of God. In the same way, we look forward to the return of Jesus. Because for now, we're people who are following God in a world that wants to get rid of God. You're going to have conflict there. It's going to be a challenge. The good news is God says, I don't leave you on your own. I will sustain you in that. Having said that, I would tell you there are times God's people who claim to know God can act as if God doesn't exist. Let me give you an example. I've told you, if you've heard me preach before, you know I, I catastrophize. I imagine worst case. And then I worry about that and I stress about it and most times it doesn't happen. But you know what, in worrying about that, what I'm saying is, if, if that outcome happens, God's out of control. God can't, God's not good if that outcome comes. I'm living as if God does not exist. You're capable of that, and I am too, in our everyday life. I mentioned this particle physicist that I went to see and kind of some of his thoughts. Well, he was actually on the UNL campus. And our younger son was with me. And we went, he was in the seventh grade at the time. And so I walked out and I said, Drew, what, what'd you think? Val, what'd you think? And he said, Dad, oh, I'm on board. Um, he said, I'll never leave my faith for intellectual reasons. That is interesting for the seventh grade. He said, but, but I could leave it for emotional reasons. If something happens, God, I'm done. The cancer diagnosis comes, the job loss happens, the, the breakup happens to this. And if God, that's the way you are and done. And I would argue there more than ever in those emotional times is when we need God. So I'm asking you to set the roots deep. I'm not bailing, no matter how I feel, because I believe God is real and he's true. I think the evidence points to it. When I get in those situations, I'm not bailing on God. Because it's then when I need him most. Again, I'd ask you, who can you talk to in your sphere of influence? Who can you begin praying for? There's people around you that are living foolishly. I don't care how smart they are, how successful they are. They're living foolishly. They live as if God doesn't exist. Oh, maybe they don't do it actively, but passively. God has no part in their life. Would you begin to pray? Move towards them. Develop a friendship that you could share your story. You don't have to dump the truck on them to pursue them and share what Jesus has done in your life. They're not in your life by accident. They're there for a reason. The sovereign God put them there. So when I, was, when I was in high school, it's different now, we took driver's ed in high school. How many of you took driver's ed in high school? Anybody did that? Okay. So we do a little classroom time, and then we're on some simulators, and then the day comes for us to go out. And so we've got a driver an instructor in the passenger seat and two of us in the back seat. I start in the back seat. 
Okay, it's some other guy up there. And the, the, the instructor has a break that he can stop the car, okay? So it is about, we're in the back of the school. It is about, oh, somewhere between a quarter and a half mile from the back of the school out till we get on the road. How many times do you think in that quarter to half mile did the instructor step on the brake? Any guesses for me? Three. Three times. Quarter to a half mile. No, you don't want to do that. You don't do this. Um, talking about my younger son. Uh, I was the driving parent, and he said, Dad, I always knew when to stop because you were stepping on a brake that wasn't there. I just... The instructor was in the passenger seat so we wouldn't drive foolishly. Do you understand we need the presence of God that we might not live foolishly? If we forget God, we're capable of doing whatever. (laughs) Because we want that so bad, we don't think we'll give an account. And God says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. We can live that way lest we're intentional about clinging to the presence of God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful that um, you remind us we are very, very capable of living foolishly. And it has nothing to do with our IQ. It has nothing to do with our socioeconomic status. It has everything to do with how we relate to you. Do we recognize that you and you alone are the one that can keep us from making fools of our lives. Lord Jesus, that we'd look to you, the one who lived in complete submission to you, to forgive our sin and to right our heart, that we might live the way you've designed us to live. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.